Hello, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have on the line the most esteemed Warren Meyer, who is one of the, uh, I think fair to say, experts on global warming skepticism. And by that, uh, if I understand you correctly, you do not mean that you doubt the, uh, what is it, 0.6 degree global warming that seems to have occurred over the past sort of half century or 60 years or so. You don't doubt that that has occurring, but there are some particular aspects of the environmental or Al Gore-ish kind of case that you have particular issues with. The first is that um, uh, carbon dioxide does not appear to be, or at least there's no proof that it's the key ingredient. Uh, that's the first. The second is that there's no proof that it's man-made. And third, and perhaps most importantly, there seems to be little, no, little to no proof, in fact, some counter-evidence that, uh, that it's going to be catastrophic, even if we accept that it's carbon dioxide and it's man-made. The third part of the puzzle uh, is whether or not it's going to be catastrophic. And if I understand your arguments correctly, Warren, you take great exception to, to these three points. Uh, exactly. Thank you for having me on. Um, I... It, it, one of the things that I think you know that and your listeners will know is is it's popular to call skeptics uh, climate change deniers or somehow work the deniers in because it evokes the term Holocaust denier and somehow casts skepticism as as an equally uh, untenable position that shouldn't even be you know allowed in the public dialogue. In fact, you know certain companies, countries like Germany. Holocaust denial is actually illegal. It's one uh, one researcher on a speech that is uh, that is, that is legal there, and uh, I think people are trying to evoke the same thing. And and I and I said in my last video, I said I'm I'm willing to accept the denier as long as you're clear what I'm denying. I don't I don't deny that if you if you what I like to call it is it's really anthropogenic or man-made catastrophic global warming theory. And all three of those matter. You have to have the global warming that comes back to this notion that we've sort of abandoned global warming and talk about climate change. And we can come back to that. But but really, climate change can't happen from CO2 unless you have the warming. I don't really deny some warming. I don't even deny that some of the warming may be man-made, though I think it's a lot smaller number. What I deny is the catastrophe. I don't think it's going to be five, six, eight degrees Celsius of warming uh, from man-made or anthropogenic CO2, certainly, and that's that's where my difference c comes in, and, and why I really started my site. Um, just as quick background, I, I'm I'm really a journalist like you. I, I see my, I see my role. I have a science background uh, in mechanical and aerospace engineering, and it's actually in an area of control theory that has a lot to do with the stability of dynamic systems and feedback effects, which we'll get a chance to talk about a lot because that's a key failure point of the catastrophic forecast. But but I really have always seen my role as a journalist in trying to, to take the science and, and, in this case, take the skeptic side of the science and give it a broader hearing and really try to explain it to laymen because I know that uh, that some of this stuff can get pretty complicated. Well, and I, I, you know, I think that you're doing an excellent, excellent job of that. And I also wanted to really thank you for making the uh, extraordinary amount of material. And just to to pimp your website for a second to make sure that people can go and get to the source data, it's uh, climate-skeptic.com. Is that right? Exactly. Thank Fantastic. you. No, and I appreciate your, your clarification of the term denier. It sort of feels like uh, when you are a climate change skeptic that you're sort of one level above Holocaust deniers and perhaps one and a half levels above people who believe in the flat earth so, or, or who deny things like evolution. So uh, I'm glad that you clarified that. It is strange to me that uh, a skepticism about highly conjectural source data 
should right. be uh, considered anti-scientific when it seems to me that the scientific method is entirely predicated on the, uh, the rigorous application of skepticism, particularly to projected or modeled data. I, I, exactly. And I think, I think it leaves a lot of people confused because I, I think they, to some extent on scientific issues, if you're not involved in the depth of it, it's hard not to let other people's conviction you know, influence you. You know, if you're surrounded by all these people that seem so passionately convinced of something and then saying words like the science is settled and, and you don't have the, the time or the capability to really dig into that, it, it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to know what to do in that situation or really to fight it. And, and, and I think a lot of people, one question a lot of people ask is, how can so many people be so passionate about it being settled science? when you're saying it's not at all settled. And I think the key is, I always find that nobody, everybody, I hate the word liar in the in the political context. It's used way too much. I, I don't think anybody's almost seldom just blatantly outright lying, though there's some of that in the world. I, I think you can always look to say, where's the grain of truth on each side? And, and the, the key, the explanation became for me when I started investigating was when I really discovered that that this whole notion of CO2 driven warming or CO2 driven climate change is at least a two part chained theory. There's two chain parts of the chain. There's an initial part that says CO2 causes some warming. And then there's a part of the chain that says there are factors in the climate system. And we can get back to this called feedback, but there's factors in the climate system that actually multiply that initial warming many, many times. And so it turns out that, 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 that it is right to say it's fairly settled that CO2 causes some warming because I think you can prove that in the lab and we know that the earth is warmer than it would be without greenhouse gases in its atmosphere. We'd be, you know, we'd be like Mars. We'd be a much colder planet. So we, we know that we, we know that to be true. So, so there is a core of, I hate the word settled, but there is a core of quote unquote settled science in here that CO2 does as a greenhouse gas does somewhat warm the earth. We don't know. We haven't got to how much, much. But even most alarmist scientists will say that that initial warming from CO2 is very small. It might be one degree over the next century. Um, but there's this feedback effect. That there's conditions in the climate that will tend to multiply that initial warming by six or seven or eight times. In other words, the climate is a car sitting on top of a mountain. And if you give it a little bit of nudge, if you get of a nudge, it'll start rolling down that hill catastrophically, sorry, and, and crash at the bottom. And, and so it's really a two-part theory. And in fact, the catastrophe comes not from greenhouse gas theory. That only gets you one degree. The catastrophe comes from the theory that the climate is this car balanced on the top of the mountain ready to run away. And that second theory is the one that is very weak in terms of fact-based evidence and the one that most skeptics criticize and why we can say that, yes, there's a core of settled science, but we seriously, we seriously doubt the catastrophe. Well, and of course, just from a, a layperson perspective, uh, if our climate were this car poised, teetering really uh, <laughs> on its uh, on its uh, axles on the top of a cliff, uh, you would have think that it would have tipped at some point over the over the past few billion years, and we wouldn't have the relatively stable climate that we have. Uh, yeah, exactly. If you and zoom in on these graphs; it looks really, really crazy. But then, as you say, when you put back to the general range of temperatures, it is pretty much a flat line. A system can't have ended up this stable if it were that precarious, in my opinion. Uh, it's absolutely what the point that a lot of skeptics make is say it is is 
you have, and by the way, for folks, just so you could translate some of the words you hear, when we talk about a car rolling down the hill like this, this is the sort of tipping point effect you hear from folks like Al Gore or James Hansen. When they talk about tipping points, they're talking about runaway positive feedback, and we can we can talk about runaway positive feedback a little later when we delve a little deeper, maybe. But 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 when they talk about a tipping point, they really are talking about the climate precariously balanced such that the smallest nudge will throw it down the hill. And and really, I think they will all admit that CO2 itself, which is a weak greenhouse gas, really only provides a nudge. That's what it does. But it's the fact that we're on the top of this hill and rolling downhill. And, and why it hasn't rolled down the hill in the past is, is, is a key question. It's even more interesting because uh, sort of a cognitive dissonance. You have folks like Michael Mann who have really made a career of trying to portray the last thousand years of history as as being incredibly stable as, as he's trying to say temperatures have been you know almost dead flat for a thousand years and therefore there's something anomalous about the recent warming this is the famous hockey stick graph well if you really bought that which I, I don't I think there's a lot of reasons not to believe that picture anymore but if you really bought that you'd have to say well geez how is that consistent with your other notion that climate is dominated by positive feedback, that it has tipping points, that it's precariously balanced on the top of the hill. I mean, because if a, a system that's dominated by positive feedbacks and even tipping points is going to show wild fluctuations. The, the slightest change in the sun or, or anything else is, is going to cause wild fluctuations in the temperature. And, and so at the same time, they're saying that you should see this wildly fluctuating behavior. They're also saying we're not seeing this wildly fluctuating behavior. And so it's a very odd, it's a very odd situation. Right. I mean, you could almost say that psychologically, it's a projection of the fragility of the theory rather than the the actual exactly. temperature. I mean, that's obviously pure speculation. But um, um, one of the things that got me first interested, and I've been, um, uh, I guess, occasionally blogging and videographing about uh, the my skepticism for at least four or five years uh, uh, on uh, on climate change. One of the things that kind of drew me, I come from the business world and in particular the software world as an entrepreneur. That was sort of my, my past incarnation. And the hockey stick graph looked way too much like madcap projected sales revenues to me right. to, to be really right. believable. But one thing that I found that's very interesting when you look at the a lot of the graphs that go back in time, as you point out, it's really only since the 70s that we've been uh, having access to satellite data. And uh, even semi-reliable temperatures have only been around for 100 or so uh, years. Right. But it's kind of like in, in, in business, you have your actual sales and then you have your projected sales. But in the world of climate change, it's almost like the reverse because you have your actual temperatures. And again, I know there's lots of problems with, with the positioning of the, the recording stations, which we should, right. I think, get into. But you have your actual temperatures and then going further back, you have your projected temperatures. And in the business world, nobody would say with certainty that the projected sales, particularly if they're very different from the existing or, or recent trends in sales, that the projected sales are solid uh, compared to, <laughs> right. to the ones that already exist. But in the, in the world of climate change, you can have these apples and oranges comparisons, right? The comparisons between uh, mostly real recorded data and sheer seat of the pants projections and combine these two uh, seamlessly and then drop the ones that don't fit. Uh, and, and that to me is the apples to oranges comparisons that really began to raise my skepticism uh, way back in the day. Yeah. And you, and you really see that in two ways because it's funny. It's, as you say, it's, it's a funny business because everybody used forecasts and models to try to project forward. We just don't have a choice, but, but this is a funny business that uses forecasts and models to, 
to recreate history too. And, and, and so you, you actually get some parallel problems, oddly enough, between their, their, the way they measure history and the way they, they project forward. That's why, you know, this whole, uh, uh, brouhaha surrounding the, the email release from the East Anglia University is it, sometimes hard to figure out because what they're talking about, because people say, well, are they talking about their past temperatures or are they talking about their climate models for the future? And, and the answer is yes, because they tend to have the exact, interestingly, they often have, have the exact same problems. And it, and that was the problem I had from the hockey stick from the very beginning is, is, is you have this line that's flat historically. And that's actually from one data set. The flat historically number is actually from, from tree rings or ice cores. And the first one was from tree rings. And they, for those who don't know what they do with tree rings is, is you're always looking for a natural process to figure out historical temperatures that layer. Because then you can say each layer is a different year or a different decade. And then we can associate any information in that layer with, with, with a certain time. And so tree rings layer by year. They have a ring for each year. And they hypothesize that trees grow more or less when it's warmer or colder. And so you can look at the widths of the tree rings to try to recreate temperatures. Now trees don't make very good thermometers. You could probably guess that because a lot of things affect tree growth. But nevertheless, this is how they did it. And, and you, and they came up with these lines from the tree rings that said, well, temperatures are really flat. And then they splice on a completely different data set, which is, which is the measurement of temperature with thermom with like thermometers the way we do it now, a and the inflection point between those the hockey stick the way with a place where it goes from from flat to to pointing up is, is is that actual point where they come together is where the two data sets meet so so which raises the question are you are you actually measuring anything real or do you just have a discontinuity between your two data sets? Because anytime I see an inflection point when you've melded two data sets, I'm immediately suspicious that it has more to do with the data splicing than it does anything else. And then you have the same thing going into the future too. And so it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of oddball science that goes into some of this stuff. Um, and, now, haven't, and, sorry to interrupt, but haven't they also done uh, work to uh, to continue the data set by looking at the tree rings or the ice core samples and found that it does not match the recorded temperatures? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. The What they've done is they initially took some tree rings, and, and one of the things you did, one of the things you'll see is the tree ring data up through like 1950 matches really well to the temperatures. And you say, well, that, that looks like it's a good thermometer. But what you don't realize is the tree rings don't read a temperature. You've got to calibrate them. So you have to have some period where where you have both tree rings and thermometer temperatures. And so what you do is for 50 years, say from 1900 to 1950, you say whatever the tree rings grew will correlate that to whatever the thermometer said the temperature went up. Okay, so you actually, the only reason that they, that they look a lot similar between 1900 and 1950, say, is because they're forced to. They're like a dog on a leash, I say. So there's no surprise that the dog stays close to its master. Um, you know, that, that the, the proxies, the, the tree rings stay close to real temperatures during that period because they're on a leash. They're forced to, 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 to be equal mathematically. But then you let them off the leash in 1950 and they went back and they resampled the tree rings. And what they found is temperatures kept going up. We know that it's gone up two, three, four, five tenths of a degree Celsius over the last 50 years. But the tree rings didn't show the temperatures going up, at least by the way they were reading the tree rings. In fact, in several of them, they actually showed the temperature going down. And so this is a, a phenomenon called divergence. And that doesn't mean that the tree rings are right and the thermometers are wrong, that somehow temperatures are going down. That's not the point of it. The point of that is to say, 
if the tree rings in its first outing, you know, like their pitcher in the first game of the season, if the tree rings are failing so badly the moment they get off, let, let off the leash, um, and they don't match current temperatures at all, they're going, not only do they not match, but they go in the opposite direction, then how can we trust what they're saying about the year 1300 or 1200 or 1000? And so, and, and so it's, it's a real indictment of the quality of those things. And, and the guys that published it knew it, which is part of this recent scandal, is they actually, when they published it, they actually cut off the end of the tree ring data. They actually truncated it so it didn't show the decline. And so the divergence was, was hid when the, the, hidden when the data was used in things like the IPCC reports. Right. And that is um, a pretty egregious mishandling of information that I mean, we all have confirmation bias and we all have. And and that's exactly why you need peer review, wide publication, access to source data and the algorithms. And it seems to me that, that to be labeled some sort of irrational skeptic. When the reality is that when uh, McIntyre, I think his name is, the Canadian who's been pursuing this data for many years, whenever the source data is released, uh, it it proves to be a counter to the graphs. That's not skepticism. That's just reality. And the other thing that that I think is important, and you mentioned in your uh, 2007 video, is that the huge amount of corrections that are needed for things like um, uh, urbanization and change of land use, agriculturalization, and so on, that the algorithms from, I think it's from NASA and the uh, UN, uh, have not been released for peer review. And that seems to me uh, something that should raise the alarm bells of anyone. If, if you have the source data, which itself is unreliable, and right. then you apply all of these algorithms in pursuit right. of a thesis, and then you refuse to release the algorithms to peer review, I mean, I can't imagine how you would take any of that seriously as an outside observer. Yeah, and I, just, just as a quick background, I, I have a lot of the same background that you mentioned before. I actually was a business and a common metrics modeler and forecaster for a number of Fortune 50 companies. And unfortunately, and I'll just admit this, I'm perfectly aware of what games you, one can play with, 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 with models and stuff. I mean, and it's, I've done it's, sales projections too. I think we've both, both I mean, you can, you can get whatever answer out of these things you want and nobody from the outside without digging into it is going to be able to be able to tell the difference. And, but, but going to your point about, um, about the corrections, one of the things, it, it, it was actually, um, one of the first things I did in this project was a guy named Anthony Watt in California, a meteorologist, was sponsoring a study and he wanted everybody to get out and, and sort of a crowdsourcing, go out and, and actually photograph and, and catalog their nearby measurement stations. So the U.S. Historical Climate Network, and I assume Canada has something similar, um, has about a thousand stations. So they said, let's, let's get my readers to go out and photograph these things. And that's what I actually did is I photographed in most of the measurement sites within Arizona. And the very first one I did is this photograph's been all over the place. It was actually at the University of Arizona. And there's actually a sign on that says, proudly operated by the University of Arizona meteorology staff for, for the National Weather Service or, or what, or I think actually for the NOAA. And, um, it's sitting in an asphalt parking lot. I mean, so you have a temperature device that's supposed to be free of biases and that's really measuring temperature. And this is the Tucson station. And and the reason I'd gone to it in the first place is that Tucson in the U.S. Climate Network data showed the most warming of any other station in the country over the last hundred years. So I said, let's go look at it. Well, this thing's sitting in an asphalt parking lot, which means during the night, that asphalt, which has absorbed heat all during the day, radiates it right back onto the thermometer. There's buildings all around it that block airflow. And so this thing's average temperature of the day is going to be much higher 
than it would be if it was sitting out in an open field, which is what it was in the year 1900, because Arizona, where I live, wasn't even a part of the United States. It wasn't even a state in 1900. That's how deserted it was. Right. And so it goes from sitting in a field to sitting in an asphalt parking lot. I want to give a slight background just for those who are sort of jumping in midstream to, to this debate. The weather stations are supposed to be away from urban areas because, of course, oh, yeah. urban areas generate a lot of heat. They're supposed to be in natural environments and away from any heat sources. So to put them in a parking lot or next to an air conditioning outtake, which is where you, you've seen some of it. <laughs> that was the first one Anthony sort of found, to yeah. At it, but it's going to give a highly exaggerated increase in reading, particularly if it's located in an area where urbanization has grown up around the data set around right. the 20th century, it's going to give you vastly escalated readings, which is going to give you an indication of general warming when all it's recording is the presence of heat emitting uh, substances like tarmac or air conditioners uh, or right. fires uh, around it. So that's going to give you a very misleading trend uh, relative to where it started. Yeah, you, you said fires. You saw he found one where, I, which I, I think you're probably thinking about, where the, the the thermometer is about five feet from a trash burn barrel in this dump area of this apartment, where where the apartment burns its trash right next to the to the official temperature station three times a week, which I always thought was funny. Which is sort of but, the rough equivalent of installing smoke alarms and then holding lighters underneath them and saying, just, "Gosh, I can't believe how much my house is on fire." I can't get all these false alarms. I don't understand. The uh, the my son and I actually did a I I, I don't know. Uh, two things that, so that y'all can get a feel for it. If any of y'all live in a city, you will often hear a forecast, and you'll particularly hear this at night for the low temperature because that's where you get the biggest effect. You'll hear a forecast that might be, um, you know, it's going to be 20 degrees in the city and 14 degrees in the outlying areas. And, and that's a very typical forecast that you might see uh, in, in, a, in a large city at least here in the States, that they'll always say that the city is going to be warmer tonight than the outlying areas. And that's from the urban heat island effect. My son and I actually measured it from a science project. We actually strapped a thermocouple and a GPS device, both with uh, timestamps on them, to the top of the car, and we drove around the town and, and graphed it and found the difference between the center of Phoenix in the evening and the outlying area of Phoenix was between 7 degrees Fahrenheit or between, you know, 4 and 6 degrees Celsius. Um just from driving 20 miles. And so that's the kind of biases any thermometer that's sitting in the middle of the city is going to have. And and the key thing of it is not that it has a bias, because if it was always there, then we're, we're really only looking for a warming signal. So if it was always there, you say, okay, it's no big deal. But but the key problem is, 100 years ago, Phoenix and Tucson were were open fields. I mean, there is nothing here. I can't. I can't tell you how deserted Arizona was. And so you're going from measuring a temperature 100 years ago that was very likely in an open field with no asphalt and no cars and no industry, to 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 being in the center of a of a 10 degree heat bubble, and that's going to bias that, that signal upwards. So the signal to noise ratio, which engineers talk about a lot, the if the signal is a half degree of warming and the noise is is 10 degrees of urban heat island effect. That's a terrible signal to noise ratio. It's yeah. it's almost un because because people argue well we can correct for it. Well you can't because if you're off by even, you know the, if the the signal is five percent of what you're trying to correct for, that means if you're off by even five percent and what's really a guess of how much to correct that urban bias, you know because you're going to say well I'll subtract six degrees or seven degrees or three degrees, but if you're off by even a little bit in that guess, then you've exceeded the very signal you're trying to measure. Well, yeah, and that's very true that, that almost all of the calculations that are done in these model scenarios have variances of error uh, or potential for variances of area 
hugely greater than the 0.6 degrees that are it's actually been trying to measure and right. it's sort of strange like you know they, there are some places uh, here in, in Canada or in, in Toronto and I'm sure it's the same is, is true in the states where uh, you have warehouses that by day they're pretty empty or whatever and then at night they'll be turned into raves and you'll have like 500 people dancing a storm and sweating and all that kind of stuff and it's right. like putting a, a temperature gauge in the middle of the afternoon when it's not used by anyone and then putting another one in when there are 500 people dancing and saying oh my god look global warming it's happening. Yeah, that's, no, a, no, that's an ambient heat source around that's affecting your measuring. And, and the really odd thing, just to, to, to not spend too much time in the adjustments, but when I was looking at adjustments, I said, okay, well, I wonder how much they're adjusting these stations downwards. And it turns out that the average adjustment for U.S. temperature stations over the last 50 years is actually upwards. They've actually, they're actually manually adding degrees to the temperature. And so in the U.S., the half degree global warming signal They've added a half degree over the last 50 years manually. So the entire warming signal, in the United States at least, is all manual adjustments. <laughs> and so just to give another sense of the signal-to-noise ratio. So you, so, you know, the only thing we're really measuring is not an increase in temperature, but how well folks may be guessing about the manual result, about manual adjustments. And if they're adding temperature rather than subtracting it, um, you know, assuming there's a cooling bias rather than a warming bias, I don't think their guesses are pretty very good. Right. It's the thing that sometimes happens in business where you mistake a spreadsheet for reality. That uh, is never, never a good thing. Well, that's the happen. climate. That's the climate model problem in spades. So right. And I think that this is also shored up by some of the data that you've presented, which uh, indicates that you can really only find global warming if you look at the urban measurings uh, measurements of temperature. When you look at the rural measurements. Uh, you can't find that, which again would indicate that all we're doing is measuring the rather obvious fact that when lots of people move in and build stuff, stuff right. gets warmer. And I think, you know, I think the the one thing I tell people is is don't get hung up on too much on trying to deny that there's been any warming. Because one of the things when you look at the ice core data that, that isn't kind of well understood, I, let me just give folks a view of one possible view of what's happened in temperatures over the last thousand years. It's generally thought that there is a warm period in the Middle Ages. Certainly every European historian I've ever taken a course from thinks there's a warm period in the, in the Middle Ages around 1000 AD, um, where there's actually a lot of prosperity. Historically, warm periods have always led to prosperity. And so there's a, a medieval warm period around 1000 AD, though, though folks like Michael Mann are trying to erase that from the record. And then there's a, most folks agree that there's a thing we call the Little Ice Age, during the 1600s, early 1700s, ending around 1800, and which corresponded to a, a very um, dormant, for lack of a better word, period of the sun, where the sun showed very few sunspots. Sunspots are generally correlated to solar activity. When the sun's more active, it usually has more spots. When it's less active, it's usually cleaner of spots. And there's a thing called the Maunder Minimum, where during that same period of time, the sun was had very, very few spots compared to, to, to history. And, and so there's a, there's a very, very cold period up to about 1800. And the, the interesting thing that I hadn't known until I was looking at ice core records a few years ago is that actually may have been the coldest period in the last 5,000 years from 1600 to 1800. And if you think about it, when did we invent the thermometer? We invented the thermometer 1600s, really started taking – the British have a temperature record beginning in the 1750s. You know, the U.S. starts having temperature records in the 1850s. So we really started measuring temperatures for real at the perhaps the coldest history in the entire 5,000-year history of 
time in the the entire 5,000 year history of civilized man. So it should be unsurprising that we're seeing some warming. It has warmed since the Little Ice Age. And it was warming in 1850, and it was warming in 1900, and it was warming in 1950. And so it has warmed some. I think that the point is that a lot of these metrics are overestimating that warming, that we're confusing urban bias with, with real warming. And I think a lot of the studies have shown, I think a good number is probably half the warming we've seen, maybe half of the seven-tenths of a degree C, may actually be urban biases rather than real warming. But there's still uh, several tenths of a degree, at least, warming signal in there and we shouldn't get hung up on trying to make it go away because because a recovery from the little ice age is perfectly natural right and i to to your point i guess everybody feels tall when they're standing next to danny devito right and uh, it's going to seem particularly <laughs> warm if you calibrate according to the coldest uh, coldest couple of decades on record yeah yeah exactly the uh, the and and so and by the way just not to to, to go too far afield but that's a, it just i'm always fascinated when you look at people say well, the oceans are rising, and, and they're rising two to three millimeters a year, and, and, and the glaciers are melting, and the glaciers have been generally retreating, though there's a little bit of, of they may be reversing of late, of some of the European glaciers, but glaciers have been generally retreating in the last decade. But the reason that oceans have been rising and glaciers have been retreating in, in, in the year 2000 is because they were doing the same thing in 1980, and the ocean was rising and glaciers were retreating in 1950, and it was rising and retreating in the year 1900, and it was rising and retreating in the year 1850. There's been a continuous, almost linear rise of two to three millimeters a year in the ocean levels for 150 years, right out of the recovery from the Little Ice Age, and there's been a continuous retreat of glaciers that perhaps has slowed of late right since the end of the Little Ice Age. And it's a, it's a constant phenomenon. And if you were to blame the most recent um, retreat and ocean rise on global warming, then you're forced to sort of say, well, coincidentally, it was all doing the exact same thing naturally up to 1950. And so I guess, coincidentally, that natural process stopped at the exact same moment that CO2 took over and drove warming that made the rest of it happen. The Occam's razor just tells you, you know, it's probably just a 200-year, you know, constant history. And the same thing that was causing it to rise and melt um, in 1850 is the same thing that was causing it to rise and melt in 1990 right. in, in one continuous history. Right, and and I think I think that's a good a good point to talk a little bit about uh, CO two and its yeah. lack of effective candidacy as a catastrophic uh, anthropogenic factor in global warming. Which is, I guess, the, there are threefold arguments in, and of course, correct me any time I go astray. You sure. are, of course, the expert, but. The first is that it's, of course, extraordinarily low concentration in the atmosphere, and even if you double it, it's still extraordinarily low, a few right. hundredths of a percent. Uh, the second is that it is a relatively weak, uh, relative to something like water vapor, it is a relatively right. weak um, uh, global warming agent, or, or greenhouse gas, I, su I suppose. And the third, which I found very interesting and I didn't know about before I watched your material, is that it, it, is, it follows the law of diminishing returns. In other words, if you right. double the carbon dioxide, you don't end up with double the uh, heat retaining capacity, it diminishes, uh, right. and which of course is the exact opposite. Everything that you see in global warming is like uh, uh, asymptotic almost, right? I mean, it's just right. massively uh, increased, right, right. Uh, whereas uh, it, there is actually, it's the opposite kind of curve for, uh, for excess carbon di uh, dioxide uh, in, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere. 
Yeah, let, if you don't mind taking a step back, because I don't know where all the listeners are, just just 30 seconds on what the greenhouse effect is, just so oh, people please, understand. Yeah. And, and again, this is, what I'm about to say is all accepted. I mean, we wouldn't be able to live on the planet if what I'm about to describe doesn't happen in some way, because, because it would look like Mars and not, not, not Earth. But, but the, the sun, typically the sun radiates energy down to the Earth, and then the Earth re-radiates it on different frequencies in the infrared spectrum back into space. And those have to balance. I mean, it's just like, it's just basic, uh, any kind of basic energy flow that if, if those two don't balance, then the temperature is going to change. And the temperature is going to change until it brings them into balance. So if more is coming in than going out, the temperature is going to rise. And a rising, in an in a, in a object that's hotter actually radiates more back out. That's what tends to bring it back into balance. And so, yeah, just so people so, know, it's sort of like if you take the plug out of your bathtub and pour water in at the same rate that it's going out, you're going to exactly. end up with a constant level of water. If less is going out, you, it's going to increase as more is going out. So it, it's always going to reach some kind of equilibrium of that water level if what's going out is the same as what's coming in. Exactly. And so what CO2 does is, is it doesn't change the fact that it still has to balance. What greenhouse gases do is as the, the sun's it doesn't affect the sun's radiation coming in, but as a, as it's re-radiating out, the re-radiating out those frequencies of infrared, CO2 absorbs some of those frequencies of radiation. So actually takes on heat and and kind of intercepts some of those frequencies, intercepts some of them, but not all of them. That's why it's a diminishing return. Intercepts some of that radiation going back, and and heats the CO2 up. Now what happens then is. The CO2 then re-radiates. It, it has to keep its temperature in balance. So as it's absorbing heat, it's also re-radiating heat back out. And, and some of that heat gets re-radiated back into space where it was going anyway, so it has no big effect. But some of it gets re-radiated back down to the sur surface. And so it's, it's not a really good analogy, but if you think about what's happening in some sense, the, the heat's coming off the Earth, it's trying to go back into space to cool the Earth. It gets intercepted to some extent by the CO2, and some of that that's intercepted gets sent back down to the Earth. And that causes an additional amount of radiation hitting the Earth, and so the temperatures of the Earth has to rise to, 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 to regain the balance. And, and, and as you said, the CO2 is very weak on that. Uh, water is, is much stronger, and something like methane is even stronger yet. And since it only absorbs certain frequencies, Eventually, it gets, it, its ability to absorb those frequencies gets saturated. And, and the best example I've heard is like painting a window. You have a clear window, and you shine a light through it, and all the light gets through. If you paint it with a coat of paint, I don't know if you've ever seen it do it, but putting one coat of paint and look on the other side, the window is still going to be translucent. Some of that light still gets through that coat of paint. Um, you put a second coat of paint on, and it's going to be really dim, but maybe some of the light gets through. Put a third coat of paint on. It's now opaque. Now the light gets through. And from then on in, you could keep adding coats of paint and it's not going to change a thing because all the light's already blocked. And, and to some extent, that's a good analogy for, for the diminishing return of CO2. Right, right. So, uh, and so that, e even if we are producing enough CO2 to uh, affect the, uh, the temperature, uh, it is, it, it is, seems to be that it's going to point in the opposite directions towards this snowballing escalation towards right. catastrophe uh, with this sort of a positive reinforcement or positive right. feedback that you talk about that quite the opposite is true given the problem. It's not like ozone because ozone, of course, hangs in the atmosphere and, and continues like the ozone, right. sorry, ozone depleting chemicals. Uh, but that's not the case with um, with carbon dioxide, which is another reason why, of course, uh, the, the sort of slide towards catastrophe uh, is, is far less credible.
Yeah, and, and I, I, the one thing you should understand is, so now now let's forget every other effect. Let's, let's assume nothing else happens. So I'm going to leave out the thing we've been calling feedback, and then we can talk about feedback. But if you assume nothing else happens, scientists and skeptics actually are pretty good agreement on what the number is for, for, for warming from CO2 from that basic effect. And most folks will accept the number around one degree Celsius of warming from a doubling of CO2. And, and just to give you a sense, we're about um, 385 parts per million CO2. A doubling is about what they think we'll be at at the end of the century. So you can think of that as, from that basic underlying effect, about one degree Celsius. Now there's skeptics that argue that it's, there's some that argue that it's zero. There's skeptics that argue like, uh, that, uh, that, um, I believe that, um, Lord Moncton actually thinks it's more like a half. But if you talk to folks like Spencer and Christie and, and, and um, Lindzen and a lot of the, 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 the actual scientists, I'm just a journalist, the actual scientists involved in this thing, they'll generally accept the number around one. Now, that's not just a skeptic number, though, because if you go to the IPCC report, which is sort of the, the, the Bible of the alarmist community, they say it's one, too. They include a formula in there. It actually comes from Michael Mann, who's one of the high priests of the alarmist community, back in a study he did in 1998, and, and they give a formula. But if you solve the formula, it basically says that the warming, before you get to all these feedback effects from CO2, is something like one, I think it works out to 1.2 degrees C, Per doubling, or one point, you know, about one degree a century. And, and sorry, so, let me just, uh, just clarify yeah. that. So that that is a straight line projection based on current trends. Is it fair to say that that does not include uh, some of the reactive elements within the biosphere, such as additional CO two driving additional plant life? Right, exactly. That's before that's before any kind of reaction of the climate system, either to dampen that effect or accelerate it. Right. So okay. before any of those, ex what I call feedbacks, but those dampening and accelerating factors, because there's, before we talk about clouds and before we talk about methane and before we talk about you know, humidity from the ocean and, and, and ice changes and albedo, before we talk about all those effects, it's about a degree over the next century, which is, by the way, about what, you know, we've warmed over the last century a little higher. Right. And I don't think if people hadn't told us we'd warm that much that many of us would have noticed it. So anyway, so I actually think the final value when we get to all those feedback effects is going to be lower than one. Other folks think it's going to be a lot higher. But, 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 but it's, but the basic quote unquote settled science theory of greenhouse gases, even by the most alarmist reckoning, gets you a degree of warming over the next century. Doesn't get you a catastrophe. Gets you gets you the nudge on the car on the top of the hill. Right, and that and is again just to remind people that is holding all other variables as right. constant, which is of course an insane thing to do when something with something. Uh, yeah, is complex. You can't do that in the climate. So certainly we're being we're oversimplifying. But 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 I, I want folks to understand that that one of the points I make a lot is that the catastrophe actually doesn't come from greenhouse gas theory. Greenhouse gas theory only gets you that one degree. It's it's the theories about how climate behaves when when it's got a perturbation, when it's got a when it's got a, a new forcing like that. How the climate behaves and reacts to that warming is that theory and that set of theories that drives the catastrophe. So greenhouse the, uh, gas the theory could be the aspect, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. So greenhouse gas theory 
can be settled, but it doesn't get us a catastrophe. The catastrophe comes from a completely different theory that is almost never, ever talked about in the media or the popular popular press, and that's the theory that the climate is is not only has positive feedbacks, because it does have some positive feedbacks, but it's, dom it's net effect, it is dominated by those positive feedbacks, that those positive feedbacks drive the system. And that's what most skeptics focus on as the key failure point of, of the catastrophic theory. And what is, if you don't mind, uh, what are some yeah. of the key factors of this, uh, uh, oh my God, we're all going to die, everybody's yeah, so running down a hill screaming with their hair on fire, <laughs> uh, from a one degree temperature increase, what is the general theory that allows people to say that kind of stuff with a straight right. face? So here's, here's it, it's, it's, when I say positive feedback, you can think of amplification. So, so there's some amplification that occurs that multiplies it. And then when you get to tipping point, you get to an extreme form of amplification, which could best be illustrated as when you get a uh, feedback, when you get what's actually called feedback, when you get that squeal in a, in a speaker system that the speaker system just goes crazy and goes to sort of infinite volume as loud as it could possibly be and blows out your ears. That's sort of the system going from positive feedback amplification to runaway positive tipping point feedback and so so, so in your amplifier and, and let me give you a couple examples in the climate system what that might be and I'll give you the positive ones first because I'll, I'll give their case first one positive one which I agree is positive though I don't think it's that large is is ice albedo and and I'll tell you what that means um, ice when, when there's a lot of ice and snow cover in the world that reflects sunlight back. We've all been, you know, out in the snow, certainly up in Canada there you have, and you walk out on a sunny day when there's a lot of snow and ice on the ground, and you have to put your sunglasses on because it's like walking around on a big mirror. Well, that's how exactly how it works. For, if you look at it from space, it looks like a big mirror, and all this solar radiation comes in and gets ref a lot more of it gets reflected back into space than it would if it hit a tree or grass or bare ground. And so as the world gets the theory is as the world gets warmer, there's less snow and ice, there's less ocean sea ice, and so therefore with less ice, less sunlight gets reflected back, and therefore the world is even warmer from that second effect. So there's a secondary effect of some warming causes less ice and snow, which causes the world to be less reflective, which causes even more warming. And that's how feedback works, is some initial warming causes even more warming. And that's and, and uh, ice is ice is a very to, good example. Sorry to clarify that, but but wouldn't uh, sorry I don't mean sorry to clarify that, but I'd like yeah, to that's clarify right. that. Um uh, I can use all the help I can get, so that's if fine. The, um, uh, if some of the, uh, say, Arctic or Antarctic ice melts, then won't the heat go plunging into the ocean, where, as far as I understand, it sits for about 800 years before coming back out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It, I've oversimplified, so it's extraordinarily complicated because, because there's also some other, some other, one can argue that to some extent the, the ice may be insulating the underlying ocean. Um, it, it could get absorbed by the oceans and, and, captured in a way that it you know doesn't return there's a and get buried in the deep oceans there's a lot of things that could happen let me let me give a let me give a, a second example but but you think of it as snow cover than in Canada like like this year like Britain I, I don't know if anybody saw the saw the pictures but they had this marvelous satellite picture of the entire um, main British Isle being completely white totally covered in snow the first time anybody could remember that for for quite a number of years and from space it was 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 very distinctive you can think of you know the british isles on those days 
were reflecting a lot more sunlight and heat back into space than they were on the days when there wasn't snow cover. So that's that's the basic theory. Um, another example is, remember I told you that, um, we should talk about the main one. The ma everything else is trivial compared to water vapor. So let's talk about water vapor. Um, the, 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 I told you a while ago that CO2 wasn't a very good greenhouse gas. It's actually very weak. Water is a much stronger greenhouse gas. So the theory, one amplification theory, is that as the world warms from CO2 or any other initial warming, but from CO2, the, 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 the heat vaporizes more water out of, out of the oceans. And at the same time, um, the, the amount of moisture that air can hold goes up as its temperature goes up. As air gets warmer, it can hold on to, to, to more water vapor, more moisture. And so its carrying capacity, you can think of that as moisture is higher. Um, that's actually why we have both humidity measure, which is how much moisture is in the air, but we usually use relative humidity, which is how much moisture is in the air relative to its total carrying capacity, and that total carrying capacity changes with temperature. Um, so, so the theory is that as the world warms, uh, the oceans warm, lakes warm, rivers warm. That vaporizes more wa air vapor into the water. The air can, is warmer. It can carry more of that vapor. And that with more water vapor in the atmosphere, that water vapor is a very strong greenhouse gas. So now we have, now we have a s initial warming creating more greenhouse gases, more water vapor in the air. And that water vapor causes a lot more warming because it's a very strong greenhouse gas. And that extra warming it's recursive. It goes an infinite loop. That warming causes even more warming because that second amount of warming causes more water vapor to go up in the air, which causes even more warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, okay, and sorry, so, just, just two, two objections pop into my mind, which I'm sure uh, have been dealt with at least tangentially by the community that, that proposes this stuff. The first, of course, is that clouds are themselves a reflective substance, kind right. of like lower density ice or glaciers in terms of re reflecting uh, heat back, back into the air. Uh, that would sort of be the first, uh, the, mm -hmm. the first one that, that would come to mind, which might limit some of that. The second, of course, is that if small degrees increases in, in general temperatures cause this kind of escalation, then why haven't we seen it before at times during the right. little, uh, uh, ice age, uh, uh, sorry, the medieval warm period and so on, when we had exactly this kind of stuff? Why didn't that escalate into the planet is on fire? Right. And, and I can't answer the second because that's a very good question. The first one your first question, I think, is very is the most important, in my mind, the most important qu climate question that is unsolved, is is how does the because it, how does the extra water vapor manifest itself in a climate system in a warmer or cooler climate system? Because you're absolutely right, it's actually even more complicated than that because. Low clouds, like cu big fluffy cumulus clouds that cause storms and things like that. The big fluffy cumulus clouds cause, um, reflect, cause a lot of cooling and reflect a lot of, um, uh, uh, sunlight back into space and cause a lot of cooling. And they just, we all know that clouds cause shade and it's cooler in the clouds. Uh, we certainly know that in Phoenix. Uh, but actually high clouds, big cirrus clouds way up, uh, the, the wisp, that's big, the wispy cirrus clouds way up in the air. They actually can call, are thought by some to cause warming because they can actually trap more heat, uh, uh, than they actually reflect. So, and I'm not an expert on that, but so the one thing I am, that I do know is, and then it gets even more complicated than that because actually we're not seeing the, the, 
you know, the, the, we're actually seeing a decline in relative humidity over the last 30 or 40 years. So we're seeing far less water vapor go into the air as humidity uh, than would be expected in the climate model. So there's a lot of stuff not proving out. But but we can just take a step back instead of trying to give the answer here. I can just say this is the most important and totally unsolved question. No matter what anybody tells you, nobody really has a good feeling for the answer on on what on what the, the net effect of water vapor is in, in a warming world and what the net feedback is. And really, it's a critical question. Really, we can talk about greenhouse gas theory all we want and try to put a finer point on it, but it's irrelevant because, you know, a, a forecast of, say, Joe Rahm here in the United States gives one up to 10 degrees Celsius. Well, a 10 degrees Celsius forecast is really one degree of global warming from greenhouse gases multiplied 10 times by these water vapor feedback effects. Would you rather spend your time messing around getting the one degree to the last decimal point, or would you rather go figure out if 10 times is really right? Because there's a lot of us think it's not even greater than one. The number is actually less than one. In fact, in every natural system that I know of in the world that's stable, as you've been making the point for, for millions or billions of years, the number's less, the feedback number's less than one. The initial input is actually damped. It's like trying to push your car not from the top of the hill, but trying to push your car, you know, in a flat parking lot and having to just strain and strain and strain to even make the thing move. And most natural processes, are like that, you know, it just or or because or else if they weren't, we'd have perpetual motion machines all around us. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like a pendulum. It may swing if the wind blows or somebody taps it, but it's going to re return to a point of equilibrium because of gravity. And all right. complex systems have competing and balancing forces, like the free market or price or whatever. Right. Exactly. Uh, and and of course, if they say, well, a one degree increase in temperature overall uh, leads to an ever escalating increase in temperatures towards catastrophe. Again, just to return to my point, that does not explain why that did not occur during the right. medieval warm period where you had more than uh, that. And, uh, and even better than that is one of the things I do in my video is I take, I take those future forecasts of, from the IPCC says it's going to be three or five degree warming over the next hundred years and, and other folks say it's eight or ten degrees. And I take those forecasts and, and one of the great, so I can't, I don't have the science to solve the, the water feedback question. That's a very complicated observational problem. And fortunately, we actually have been, because of space technology, we've been putting a lot of new technology into space that I think is going to answer this problem in five years. So, and I, I think it's, it's, it, and there's a couple of folks, um, like Roy Spencer that think they're already getting to that answer and it's a lot lower feedback number than anybody's using. But, but, but nevertheless, I think that's problems can be solved. But the one thing I can do is just reality check and say, well, whatever the feedback number is, whatever the, the physics are, if they're going to exist in the future, they had to exist in the past. Nobody's implying that there's any, any step change in the physical laws of, of the earth occurring, you know, around this time. And so what I did is I took those future forecasts and projected them backwards and said, well, what do I have to believe based on the formula, based on how you have to look at the, the curve because it's not straight. You can't just linear project them back. You have to project them on a logarithmic curve. But what do I have to believe to say to believe a 10 degree forecast over the next few years, the, the catastrophic, the classic catastrophic forecast? Well, if it's going to be 10 degree in a hundred years, if I project that back, it says that based on the CO2 we've already added to the atmosphere, it has to have already been four degrees since 1850. 
Well, we haven't seen four degrees since 1850. We've seen the, the thermometers say it's been six or seven tenths, and we argue that that may be high because it's got biases and, and poor corrections in there. But even if it's six or seven tenths of a degree, we're not we're not seeing anywhere near the kind of warming that we we would have to see to be to 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 be consistent with these these high sensitivity high feedback forecasts in fact the warming we've seen in the past is far more consistent with a it with a neutral to negative feedback regime and and, and unless the warming's hiding somewhere and 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 I don't know where it's hiding. There's people that actually use those words in media interviews. Well, the warming's hiding, and you know it'll come out. You know that's 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 crazy talk. I mean, the only place it can be hiding in the deep oceans, and we've actually added a lot of really interesting tools to measure the ocean heat content. And the ocean heat content has been dead flat for the last since 2003 when we put these two tools in place. So so you just can't make history consistent with these high feedback forecasts they just they make no sense you have to assume that somehow physics you have to assume that somehow physics changed in 1999 to 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 make these forecasts have any sense going back historically well it's important to remember that physics might not have been y2k compatible and uh, (laughs) that's right yeah i know the physics the 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 climate crashed in 2000 and we got you know it It was was written in only two digits for the dates and you know that's just not a good language to write your physics in but um um, now i wanted to uh just just sort of finish up and i I really appreciate your time here but i really wanted to finish up with, with with what i think is is really the most important aspect and I don't know about you, but but certainly for me, one of the reasons that I'm very invested in uh, looking at the, the skeptical side to sort of give my bias out in front of the open is something uh, that, that you, I think, had a very powerful way of looking at uh, in your 07 presentation, which is the protection of the future wealth of the planet. Uh, it is right. my strong belief that, uh, you know, things like uh, ending war and poverty and terrorism and so on have a lot to do with generating additional wealth. Uh, particularly over this century. Unfortunately, the spread of wealth throughout uh, the world has not matched our capacity to create weapons of mass destruction and uh, torture facilities and other nefarious schemes. And the final aspect of all of this is if we assume that it's uh, carbon dioxide is the smoking gun, if we assume that it's anthropogenic, if we assume that it's catastrophic, that still does not prove that government intervention in an economy-crippling kind of way is is the way to solve the problem and you had and I'll I'll let you talk right. about the numbers if you recall them you had a very powerful way of looking at the three and a half versus two and a half percent growth over the 20th century um, based upon whether or not we allow governments to come in and, and undercut uh, the, the economic expansion or growth of the future based upon fears of these right. kinds of catastrophes. I'm wondering if you could touch upon that because I think that is why this is so important. There are literally millions of lives at stake in the global warming question because the right. growth of wealth is the growth of things like uh, you know protection from cholera and dysentery, uh, uh, running water, um, uh, medical care, uh, enough food. And so if we don't allow the economy to grow as much as it could have, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars and millions and right. millions of lives are at stake, which is why I think this issue is so fundamentally important. Yeah, it, it, it's the the numbers are, are staggering. Let me just let me just take to, before I get to the the numbers projecting forward. Just two quick uh, other other points on the topic. One thing that everybody needs to understand is 
you, you need to go sometime and take like a, a, a medieval history course to understand the disconnect because I've, I, I actually am fascinated by medieval history. So I take a lot of courses on it and the professors, every time they talk about the high middle ages, they have to deprogram the audience because they said, I know you've all been trained that warming was bad, but I'm going to tell you that, that the warming period uh, that existed from the year 1000 to 1200 was the most prosperous time for a thousand years that European populations dropped from 600 to 1,000, and they dropped from 1,200 to 1,500. And the only time European population was growing and food, they were growing a lot of food and had plenty and there's prosperity, was during this very warm period uh, of the Middle Ages. So the first thing to recognize is historically, certainly if we all raised 10 degrees, that would clearly be a problem because man wasn't evolved for, and civilization didn't evolve for temperatures like that. But Warming of the magnitude of a couple degrees has always led to prosperity, and we've seen that time and time again in history. The second thing I would add is, say, is you can really see, even for natural, because they talk about global warming causing natural disasters, and we can actually, we could, don't want to, probably not get onto all that, but just, you should know, by the way, just take one thing, because it's talked about all the time, hurricanes. Global warming, so far, has had almost nothing to do with hurricanes. 19, if, if, it was supposedly, with all the CO2 in the air, and 2009 was, uh, the lowest hurricane year worldwide in history, not just by counting hurricanes, which is a, a flawed way to do it, by, but, but looking at the total energy in all the cyclones worldwide, this is a very low, low year for hurricanes. But people will talk about hurricanes, and my reaction is always, geez, you know, it might add one or subtract one for it's a little warmer, but but those numbers in terms of lives and property damage are trivial compared to the impact of wealth in allowing people to survive such natural disasters. I mean, we have natural disasters in this country, even Katrina, that are where where yes, it's damaged and a lot of dislocated lives and a few people died, but but the 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 the, the, the catastrophe and lives is 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 trivial compared to similar storms when they hit these poor countries that that the best defense against severe weather is not changing co2 it's making everybody rich and i hate to 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 i don't want to take advantage of of in my argument of 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 people suffering but you can look at haiti going on right now i mean you see whenever you see these earthquakes you can see similar sized earthquakes and and the the difference in the death toll and the devastation between when they happen in a poor country like Haiti and when they happen in a wealthy nation are staggering which says why are we messing around with with a few tenths of of concentration of CO2 to maybe change the number of hurricanes plus or minus 1 when the key to 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 having people survive severe weather and prosper even in severe weather is 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 wealth and the example I gave that that you're referring to in my presentation is I actually looked I wish I'd looked it up you, if you have it in front of me you can give the exact number but I looked at the difference over a hundred years uh, people say well you know fighting global warming might only knock off a, you know it might knock a percentage off economic growth now I think that's actually crazy because I don't think there's any way you can you can um, obsolete the entire fossil fuel infrastructure of the world in the next 30 years and, and only reduce economic growth by 1%. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy talk because it's it just, it's just not, I mean, we're talking about going to levels of CO2 per capita that we had last in this country 
in the 19th century. But anyway, even accepting if it was only 1%, I looked at the difference in, in what the, the total worldwide GMP would be if you went at a 2.5% growth rate and a 3.5% growth rate. And you're talking about, I wish I had in front of me, it, 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 the, the difference was in the tens of trillions of dollars. I mean, it was a staggering difference. Even small changes in in worldwide growth rates make to to the prosperity and, and, and wealth of the people of the world, you know, 100 years from now. Yeah, and was, I think uh, a it far... Was two and a half times, we will be two and a half times wealthier with an additional percentage point over 100 years of economic growth. And two yeah. and a half times is, is completely staggering. Obviously, it's staggering in the first world, but it's even more staggering when you start to look at some of the developing countries and what that kind of growth would mean to them in terms of being able to build structures yeah. that would be able to survive earthquakes and hurricanes and other kinds of extreme weather phenomenon or uh, build levees to protect uh, areas that might be threatened by rising uh, sea levels and so on. Absolutely. that The best thing to do is to throw as much money into the coffers of society and then society can deal with uh, things if and when they occur. But I tell you, the well-being by impoverishing yeah. society is, is very is a very bad way of approaching it, in my, in my opinion. I I tell you, the well-being of folks in Africa right now have a lot more to do, I mean, have more to do with burning every molecule of fossil fuels they can get their hands on because it's power that lets them treat their water, it's power that lets them pump clean water to new places, it's power that runs their hospitals, it's power that brings business that people can actually get some prosperity. Because we know the country, I mean, you look at, and I'm a little older, but, but when I grew up, Southeast Asia was like Africa. I mean, really. I mean, it was, it, you know, nowadays we think of these as growing, prosperous countries, but, but they were, some of these countries that are now we think of as growing and prosperous, even in my lifetime were, were hopeless, poverty-stricken basket cases like countries in Africa were. It is not hopeless, you know, for, for the poor of the world, but, but, you know, trying to adopt what I could, I mean, Rich people are not going to. We're going to hate. We're going to hate what we would have to do to to meet these CO two targets, and it would be devastating for this economy. But 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 the United people in the United States are probably going to be the easiest to do it. I mean, a lot of these things are are really rich people's toys at this point. Solar and wind, and and I would love it someday if solar panel. I live in Phoenix. There's nothing in the whole world I would love more than solar panels being printed off in huge sheets like carpet coming out of Dalton, Georgia, and sold at the Home Depot for a buck a foot, and then I can cover my roof in it and power my house. And that's going to happen someday, and I'm going to be thrilled when it happens, but it is not here now. And the kinds of technologies are both unreliable and atrociously expensive, and, and, you, and they're not ones, and there may be ones that we can afford in this country but they're, and in Canada, but they're not ones that, that you can build development off of in Africa. It's just not realistic. And so you're talking about a choice of right now, what I often tell people is we're sitting at the cusp, I mean, a historic cusp in the history. If you look at China, you look at India, you look at Southeast Asia, unfortunately it's not really happening in Africa. I'd love to see it happen in Africa. You look at parts of South America, there are perhaps a billion people that, that, who's, where the previous generation whose life and whose poverty look no different than somebody who lived in the same spot a thousand generations ago. We're talking about a billion people right now who are in the process of pulling themselves out of poverty and into the middle class. And in my mind, that is such a critical, important thing for humanity that it would be a travesty to derail that, you know, on, on a misguided search to, 
to try to try to influence the weather by small changes in CO2 concentration. Right. I I always try to personalize this kind of stuff myself so that I can get to the real moral implications, which is, I think, what we're talking about in terms of state action uh, to to control these emissions, which, of course, there's very strong arguments to be made that even if it is a problem, it's far too late anyway. The half-life of CO2 in the atmosphere is such that even right. if we cut it all off tomorrow, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference over the next uh, couple of decades to century. Um, but even if we accept all of that, I myself would not have the, the, the guts or the callousness to stand in front of somebody in China or India or, or even Africa and say, uh, sorry, you can't have uh, clean running water and your right. child is going to face the risk of dysentery, di uh, diarrhea and death uh, because I'm afraid that uh, some scientist's modeling is going to predict another um, earthquake or two or another um, a volcano or two or another cyclone or two. Uh, so I'm afraid you're going to have to live with that risk that your child is going to die because some computer model says that uh, things right. may get bad, although there's no proof for it. I could not right. stand in front of somebody and say that. And if I can't do that, I really can't support the moral position in the abstract if I can't do it personally. Yeah. And, and, and the difference in the risk profile is tremendous. I mean, we have these computer models that I think there's tremendous problems with and there's tremendous problems trying to predict you know, what's going to happen to temperatures for a, a hundred different reasons. And so there's a whole kind of continuum of possible possibilities. But on the flip side, there's a near certainty. I mean, because you're talking about your the, the, the near certainty that that trying to purge the world of fossil fuels in the next 20 or 30 years, it's a near certainty that you're going to halt or reverse the development for, for billions of people and you're going to make the nations are already wealthy, uh, poorer in the process. And that's, that's not a, that's not a risk profile. That's not a possibility. That's, that's a lock. And so, and, 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 and so you really, people talk about this precautionary principle, but, but, and, and that we should bow down and do whatever we wish, you know, based on even small risk of catastrophic things happening. But from my mind, the result of, really following through on these CO2 targets is itself catastrophic. And it's catastrophic, maybe not catastrophic, you know, world ending for for us that are wealthy and uh, happen to live in wealthier nations. But for the majority of the world's population, we're talking about something that's truly catastrophic. It was in my lifetime that that there were still massive famines and we thought everybody in India was going to starve. I mean, you can't really picture that today, this right. notion that people in India and China are going to starve because those seem like up and coming and prosperous nations. But it was was in my lifetime that that was happening. And it was a real possibility of even further disasters in the future. And we're talking about derailing the progress they made and, and sending them back to that state. And, and you're right. I don't know if I, I don't know how I would look somebody. I don't, I don't know how I would consider myself a humanitarian um, to make that choice. Yeah, the, re the, re the frank reality is that uh, without the expansion of wealth, or even if, as you say, the expansion of wealth is slowed, millions of lives hang in the balance because that wealth does buy yeah. protection from disease and starvation and uh, other kinds of predations. Uh, millions of lives hang in the balance. And it is, seems extraordinarily vain and narcissistic for us to say that, uh, well, there's a big risk to us uh, because sea levels might rise or there might be some additional storms to focus on that rather than the millions of lives in the developing world that hang up on the expansion of this kind of wealth uh, seems to me extraordinarily narrow-minded, narcissistic, and, and frankly, 
callous to the point of, of outright uh, uh, immorality. And I think it's something that we don't really hear a lot of in this debate, the degree to which the decisions that we're making are going to have extraordinarily catastrophic events uh, in the third world. And right. it's just it's something that needs to be brought up to the front of the debate, because if you don't look at the hidden costs, uh, uh, which really not that hidden, you really have to almost close <laughs> your know. eyes to avoid seeing them. Uh, people right. aren't going to be able to make the right decisions. And to me, when millions of lives hang in the balance, the standard of proof has to be pretty damn high right. for us to take yeah. significant uh, collective action. And the standard of proof is is all over the map. It's it's conjectural. It's modeled. It's tainted by money which goes towards funding scare stories. It's tainted by admitted biases on the part of the researchers, uh, both in terms of, you know, well, we have to be alarmist. We have to oversimplify. We have to right. hide the decline. Yeah. There's a huge amount of bias and conjecture and, and massive problems with the data. They can't even predict the past, let alone the future. There's no science that proves that all of these disasters are going to occur. And so for me, the standard of proof isn't even high enough to buy a penny stock, let alone commit the lives of millions to, right. to possible death as a result of these conjectures. Oh, I agree. And that's why, that's why I do started my site and tried to try to make the issue, issue clear for folks. And that, uh, and, and, but there's just a, there's a real, you know, I, I think 2009 was a, was a, turned out to be a good year for skeptics. I think, I think, I think we haven't won the debate by any means. Uh, we're still behind on points in the debate, but I think we finally kind of got a seat at the table at least that, that it's been acknowledged that maybe it's worth listening to what we're saying and that we might be saying some intriguing things about this. And so I'm, I, I, I'm encouraged. Uh, in this, I mean, it's e it'd be easy to discourage myself in the state of the debate, but I'm encouraged in the state of the debate. I really think we, we had a turning point in 2009 where, where we made some progress getting our points on the table and, and we're going to keep trying to, trying to do that as we get a little more of an audience and a little more openness to, uh, to hearing that side of the story. Yeah, well, truth is just a matter of time, persistence, and and accuracy. And uh, those right. of us who've been beating this drum for many years, it's good to see the debate shift. And I think you're right. 09 was a fantastic year for at least bringing the possibility of debate back. And once the possibility of, is de of debate comes back, then the most rational and consistent side will always win in the long run. But where there is no uh, yeah. debate, we, we have a trouble. But I think the debate is reopening. So yeah, Listen, I, I really feel... wanted to, to thank you yeah. so much for your time here. I know it was a long interview, but, but you have oh, so many you. great things to say. I just wanted to, to put out your website again. It's climate-skeptic.com. And you also run coyoteblog.com. Is that right? I do. That's more of a business and economics blog. Right. And, uh, um, you know, do do a search for uh, for these videos uh, on, on YouTube. There are also a number of links to them on um, uh, climate-skeptic.com. Well worth looking at it. Uh, I mean, the graphs will do a lot more to to show you what the reality is versus us, uh, you know, chattering heads. But um, have a look at this stuff. It's really, really important to educate yourself. This is a huge, huge issue for our time. And as they say, millions of lives hang in the balance about what it is we're going to do here. And uh, we need to really look at this uh, data and these arguments with an incredibly critical and skeptical scrutiny because uh, the consequences of making the wrong decisions will be borne by us and our children to a small degree, but by the lives of others around the globe by an enormous degree. So I really would encourage you to dig into this information uh, and find out. And do not be afraid, even though you run into perhaps some scorn or skepticism right. about your skepticism, you know, just hang tough and be strong in the, in the case of this debate. It's a huge service to humanity, to those who need 
the wealth that uh, the free free market can create. Uh, those who need the opportunities that a lack of government control over essential energy, which is the lifeblood of mankind as it grows upwards through the economic ladder. Uh, those people desperately need those of us who have a voice, who have the education, who have the eloquence to speak out loudly and strongly. They really need us. And so I just really would encourage people to speak out loud and strong about this and to really invite people to look at the data for themselves and where it's strong and in particular where it's weak, which is a significant uh, hole that we can't skirt around. Thank you very much for having me. All right. I will send you a copy of this and uh, I will talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.